0: You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight we continue continue the series that we started last week. If you were here last week, you remember we started a series called So You're a Christian, Now What? Uh, and that's kind of the, the question. It's like, what do we do now that we're a Christian? How are we supposed to understand what being a Christian is like and, and what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to handle things? And tonight, the question for us that is before us that we're going to try to answer is, how do I handle my ongoing struggle with sin? How do I handle my ongoing struggle <clears throat> against sin? And one thing to note uh, before we jump off into the passage that we're going to read tonight, this question is intentionally worded this way. How do I handle my ongoing struggle against sin? Like, we know we're not supposed to sin, but we do it anyway, right? You might think that along the way tonight, uh, it might come across your mind to think, how is it that I can be a Christian and still sin as much as I do? And can I tell you, I've thought that same question, and I've looked back over uh, past seasons of my life, and wondered, looking back, like, how, how could I possibly have sinned as much as I did and had been a Christian at the same time? And, and maybe you've had that same question, and maybe tonight that's where you're at exactly right now. You're, uh, you're wondering, how is it that I could continue in as much sin as I know is in my life and still be a Christian? And so maybe you're a little in, extra interested in where this is going to go tonight. The thing I want us to see as we start is that there is a difference between willful sinning with no regard for it being wrong and no desire to stop it and a continual struggle against sin even if you're giving in more than it seems like you're overcoming. There's a difference between the two things. An ongoing uh, willful uh, sin with no regard for it being wrong and no desire really to stop it versus a continual struggle against sin even if you continue to fall into sin. Maybe even it feels like more often than you overcome the temptations. So you ask yourself the question, is there a struggle at all? Is there a struggle in me against the sinful desires that I have? Do I want to not sin? And then why do I want to not sin? Like, is it for my reputation's sake, or is it because of the consequences that I want to avoid that I don't sin, or is it because I love the Lord and I know his love for me? And if there's no struggle against sin, in your life, or you feel completely callous toward God, callous toward his word, or his will and his desires for you, you may not be a Christian. You know, whereas you could feel completely defeated right now. Some of you who are Christians, continuously sinning and living selfishly, and you know you are, but your spirit is broken over it. You hate your sin, you desire to do what's right and honor honor the Lord. And I would say that that internal struggle that you have is probably evidence that the spirit God's spirit is there within you drawing you to himself and away from sin. The the fact that there's a struggle there shows that maybe you are a believer, you are a Christian, and you're trying to figure out, now what? Or maybe he's working on you right now, and you're feeling that brokenness of spirit because he's trying to draw you to himself for the first time. You know, if you're not sure where you stand with the Lord right now based on your struggle or lack thereof, I hope that this message will either encourage you Uh, or hopefully maybe encourage you to set your hope more fully on the Lord and on the gospel of Jesus Christ, or to do so for the first time. And if you know you're a Christian and you're asking this question, how am I supposed to handle an ongoing sin struggle uh, and against sin, the struggle in my life, my hope for you is that there'd be some clarity for you in this message and that you'd have a clearer picture of the way forward for you. So with that being said, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. So First John chapter one, starting in verse five. We're going to go all the way through chapter two, verse six. And I'm going to ask you to do something that we haven't done here in a while. We haven't done it all semester. Will you stand for the reading of God's word? So open up your Bibles. If you have one with you, open up your phone app if you have that, uh, or if you want to follow along the screen, you can do that too. We're going to read starting in 1 John chapter one, verse five, and go all the way through chapter two, verse six. This is what we're talking about tonight. So. Here it is, starting in First John chapter one, verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Okay, you guys can have a seat. Thank you all for standing with me as we read God's word. I tonight have four statements and then an exhortation. So really it's five points. There's there's five points to what we're going to talk about tonight that come from this passage. The first one is going to be a real obvious one to you. You're still going to sin as a Christian. You're still going to sin as a Christian. Don't get the wrong idea when you read this text and you read, if you were to go on and read all of 1 John, you might get the picture that as a Christian, I shouldn't sin anymore. Oh, you know, know, we know we shouldn't, but we never should have sinned in the first place. And the fact that we shouldn't have sinned doesn't change the fact that we have. And John isn't trying to say that we won't, rather he's saying that it shouldn't be the pattern of our lives as Christians. We, We shouldn't have a pattern of sin in our life. Your life shouldn't be characterized, in other words, by sin, because your life now belongs to Jesus, and it should be characterized by him. But that doesn't mean that you'll never be tempted to sin. It doesn't mean that you won't still give in to some of those temptations at times, because that's, that's the reality. That's the reality that we know. It's also the reality that we read in Scripture. You know, we know the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul, he is a champion among all believers, right? You look, and he's wrote, written so many uh, letters that are part of our New Testament, and you know, if there's anybody who had it together as a Christian, we would think Paul did, right? But we see this uh, little passage in Romans chapter 7 that I think is really interesting where Paul describes the struggle. Okay, here's what he says in Romans seven, fifteen through 24. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's pretty... It's pretty deep stuff right there. You know, like Paul knew the struggle of what it is to struggle against sin. What is going on with him there? And then also what's going on with us? Why is there this struggle that's, that's happening? We need to know that when we come to faith in Christ, his Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We receive his Holy Spirit into ourselves. Okay, and he cleanses us. He renews us. He brings us to life spiritually in a way that we were dead before. And it begins to work in us to make us more like Jesus, the only one who actually lived out the way that we were supposed to live. But he doesn't get rid of our sinful nature, the flesh. He doesn't just rid us of the sinful nature when he comes in to bring his spiritual nature into us. He will eventually. When we go to be with him forever and we live with him after after we are taken from this sort of broken, fallen world that we live in right now and these broken bodies that we live in and these... This, this sinful world that we live in, once we're taken away from here, yes, we will not have that sinful nature fighting against us anymore, and we'll be able to obey the Lord completely from a whole heart. But in the meantime, for now, we still live with that there. So we have two natures at work. We have a spiritual nature from the Holy Spirit that is working to make us more like Jesus. We also have a sinful nature that is gratifying the desires of the flesh. Right, And these two things are at war. You can read Romans 8 if you want more uh, clarity on this, Galatians chapter 5 talk about this talks about this as well. But for us, we need to understand that the hold that the flesh has over us, when, you know, when we're lost, we, we are completely controlled by that. But when the Spirit comes in, we can and must see that diminish, that hold that the flesh has over us, because his work is going to diminish that in us. Its power over us is going to be sort of sapped by the work of the Spirit in us. But it's not gone until we go to be with him forever. So we're still dealing with, right now, a war between those two natures within us. You know, take a look at what this other passage uh, says. James 1, 13 through 15 sort of explains how we are tempted now as believers. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. death. An important thing to note, no temptation comes from God. He cannot be tempted with evil. He doesn't tempt us with evil. He allows us to be tempted, but he does not tempt us. So what's happening when we are tempted is that we have these desires. And some of them, you know, you would say are even God-given desires. We have good desires within us that have been sort of corrupted by our sinful nature. And we seek ways to gratify those desires or to fulfill and satisfy those desires in the wrong ways in sinful ways, apart from God's design. So we're enticed by those desires, James says, seeking fulfillment in things of the world, and we're tempted to try to satisfy our desires in ways that don't honor God. And when we chase that satisfaction in those ways, that is sin. That's when we sin. The Spirit comes in to show us where true satisfaction can be found. So our desires are seeking satisfaction, and the Holy Spirit comes in to try to show us where true satisfaction of all the desires that we have can truly be found. And so, what we have is there's this warring going on between what the Spirit says and what He shows us, and what the flesh says and what it shows us. And at times we're going to give into the flesh and sin. And in a way, it seems inevitable, right? There's no way I can be like be batting a thousand against temptation. And and you guys know this. You know what it's like to to deal with temptation. So you know what it's like to. To be able to just say, look, there's no way I could be perfect. I'm going to continue to, to fall and fail at times. And we can get to the place where we say, well, if God knows that I'm going to not be perfect, and if God knows that I'm going to sin at times, and I'm going to give in to these things, if it's inevitable, then it's really not a big deal when I do that. And we can begin to rel- like rationalize it in our heads to say, oh, it's, if he knows and it's inevitable, then it's okay if I, if I sin. That's not true. Our next point speaks to why this is not true. Your sin goes against who God is and who you are in Christ. Your sin goes against who God is and who you are in Christ. If we focus back in on chapter one, verses five and six, it says, you know, the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That this like light and dark contrast. And light is meant to be you know, pure and holy and good. And the darkness here represents sinfulness, uh, you know, this corrupted nature. And the point is to say that, that God has no sin in him. He is holy and pure. And if we want to know him and be known by him, we can't be trying to walk in darkness. We can't say, oh, I've got good close fellowship with, with God and then still also be trying to walk in darkness and live in our sin. We need to understand something it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. Uh, you probably have heard that before, or, or maybe you have. In some context, I think I've probably said it before. I've, I've thought it before, and you could push back on me if you think I'm wrong. But I don't think it's that God can't be in the presence of sin. I think it's that sin can't be in his presence. Sin can't be in his presence. Sinless Jesus came and took on flesh and lived in this broken world around sinners, and sinners did not taint him. Actually, the other way around, he would work to make sinners holy. That sin couldn't go on being in God's presence. But when you are in Christ, you are now connected to his holiness. So each one of us, when we are in Christ and we're connected to him, we have actually fellowship with him through what Jesus has done for us. We are connected to all that he is, connected to his holiness, and sin cannot thrive in that context. Sin in our lives cannot thrive in the context of fellowship with Jesus. It ought not to thrive. See what John says a couple of chapters later in this same letter. First John 3, verse six and verse nine says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Again, this is not to say that Christians never sin, but we ought not make a practice of sinning. It not it ought to not characterize us. If sin is flourishing in your life, completely unhindered by the holiness of God, then you may not actually be united with him. If sin has free reign in your life, unchecked by the holiness of God, that you are united with in Christ, then maybe you are not united with him. Because if you are in Christ, abiding in him and born of God, then sinning is inconsistent with who you are. You are no longer characterized by the sins that you struggle with. You're no, no longer characterized by the sins of your past. You're characterized by being united with him. And so who you are is inconsistent with sin. So see who you are, Christian. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it may be that we'll never be perfect in this life, but we cannot just be okay with our sin. There's a third point. You need to be honest with yourself with God and others who can hold you accountable and part of that honesty is just admitting how destructive and compromising sin is. We need to be honest with ourselves recognize how how much sin can destroy we need to take our sins seriously there's no little sins. I know that we we kind of rank them sometimes in our heads there's no little sins every sin is destructive there's also this need to be honest with ourselves about just how much sin still exists in our lives. I think sometimes we'd like to think well of ourselves. We'd like to think that we're not struggling with as many things as we are. We'd like to think that, um, you know, we've conquered some sins. But look how many times lying and deception is mentioned in our text. And that'll tell you that it, it can happen. We can lie to ourselves about how much sin really is there. You know, in verse six, he talks about lying and not practicing the truth. In verse eight, he talks about deceiving ourselves and the truth not being in us. Verse 10 of chapter one, we make him a liar. Talking about making God a liar and his word not being in us. In verse, uh, verse four of chapter two, this thing about a liar and being a liar and not having the truth in us. And what makes these things true? What would make us a liar? Here's what he says. Acting like we're walking in fellowship with him while we're actually walking in darkness. Or saying we have no sin. We're saying that we have not sinned when clearly we have. Saying I know him, but not keeping his commandments. I don't want this to be true of me, and I don't think you do either. I don't want to be called a liar and inconsistent, you know, this living in sin that is inconsistent with who I am in Christ. And you know, I'd bet that you, um, if you were really honest with yourself, you could probably find a few temptations that are like clear and obvious sins in your life. Things that you struggle against, you can probably pick out a few of those in your life. If you just sat there for just a second, you could go, I, yeah, I struggle with this, I struggle with that, I struggle with that. And I'd bet that if you, uh, you know, actually sat down and thought about it for a few more minutes, you could probably come up with a few more things. Yeah, I struggle with this from time to time. Yeah, I gossip a little bit. I say some things I shouldn't, or I watch these things that I shouldn't. You know, you could probably make a list. You could start making a list of some things. And I bet if you sat down and you looked at God's word and you, and you looked at everything that he said to do and everything that he said not to do, you'd probably be able to, to pick out some more things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't always do that that I'm supposed to do, and I sometimes do these things that I'm not supposed to do. And and if we really did that, we were really honest with ourselves, we'd probably find that there's more sin going on with us than we thought. And we would need to realize at that point that that sin, if we allow it to just run on its own, is going to destroy us. We need some self awareness. And we need, we need to be honest with ourselves because if we can't be honest with ourselves, who can we be honest with? And that's not where it stops. I think we also need to be honest with God about all these things. And you could say, yeah, well, God already knows all this stuff, right? Yes. He does know, he knows every single sin struggle that you have. He knows, he knows about sins that are in your life and things that you've done that you don't even know were sin. He knows all these things, yes, but don't underestimate the effect that admitting your sinfulness before God might have on you. It's not for him to know that what he doesn't know. It's for you to be affected by admitting those things to him. You know this word confess in in verse 9, if we confess our sins, it actually means like to agree with someone else about a specific matter. So we're agreeing with the Lord about our sin. When you confess your sin to God, that's what you're doing. You're agreeing with him about its sinfulness. And then when you bring your sin to a holy God, and you confess and you're agreeing with him about the the harmfulness of your sin and and what sin is actually there, the only appropriate attitude to do that with is a readiness to repent. Can't come boastful with that sin. Can't come flippantly with that sin. Rather, the only really appropriate attitude to have is a readiness to repent. The coming to God with those things is actually the beginnings of repentance anyways. And if repentance is ultimately a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, which is, it, which is what repentance is, if it's ultimately a change of mind that leads to a change of direction, then going to God with your sin is already a step in the right direction. And that's obviously what we want to do. And when we do this regularly, confess our sin before God, we get to find out more and more how faithful and how gracious he is. You look at verse 9, that's the, that's the outcome. It says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. He is not out to get you. He's not the disappointed dad who yells at you when you come home late for curfew. He's the father who's ready to receive you with love. Yes, he hates sin. Sin is against who he is. But he doesn't just hate it because it's against who he is, but also because of what it does to his children. He is more than ready to welcome your repentant heart as often as he must because he wants something more for you. And that leads to another question that you might have. How many times can I sin in the same way and have him forgive me? Maybe you've asked that question before in your head. How many times can I do this? How many times can I give into the same sin and have him keep forgiving me? Surely it will run out at some point in time. Well, Peter asked Jesus, You know, how many times should I forgive somebody who sins against me? And he says, up to seven times. And Jesus responds with, 70 times seven. And the point wasn't you should forgive him 490 times. 491st, definitely not. He's saying it's unlimited, unlimited forgiveness. Basically, as many times as forgiveness is needed. So I'd say this, I think the answer to the question, how many times can I sin against him in the same way and still be forgiven? is how many times I'm willing to come to him in repentance. And that's not to say that you're forgiven for future sins or that you're not forgiven for future sins until you come with those and repent of them. It's not like we're forgiven of all our sins before salvation when we come to salvation. And then, you know, every subsequent time we sin, we have to go and get forgiveness, new forgiveness every time. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that every time you come to him in confession and repentance, you find forgiveness you find his forgiveness. You're never gonna find him unforgiving or the fact that he has withdrawn forgiveness from you. You'll never find that. Now again, that doesn't mean we should just keep on sinning because his grace never runs out. I think actually the opposite is the, is the result. Romans 2.4 says that his kindness leads us to repentance. You know, Meaning his, his faithful love toward me should lead me toward true repentance where I turn away from my sin with no intent to return to it. Sometimes we come to God and we confess things, we repent of things, you know, we say, I'm sorry for this, but we know in our minds, I'm gonna go right back to that sin. I don't think that's real repentance. I think with no intent to return to it, you might still give in to that sin, but you can't have that in the back of your mind like, oh, well, I'll probably just give into this again. You're kind of missing the point, you know, of repentance. You know, in just a minute, we're gonna talk about why we can trust that this is gonna be his response when we come in confession, but for now, there's another thing I want us to think about before we move on to the next point. We need to be honest about our sin with other people who can hold us accountable. Verse seven, you know, it says, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This idea, again, of walking in the light. Jesus mentioned something about walking in the light in John chapter three. Right after he said, for God's love of the world, he gives only begotten son. He goes on and talks about walking in the light. And he said that those who walk in the darkness don't want to come into the light because their evil deeds will be exposed. We don't want to be those people who shrink back from walking in the light because we're afraid our evil deeds will be exposed. We were made for the light. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Inevitably, if we're struggling against sin and facing temptation as we walk in the light, yeah, some of our evil deeds are gonna get exposed. Somebody's gonna find out. At the very least, you're gonna have to be honest with yourself about your sin. You're gonna have to be honest with God about your sin. And our tendency, when we think that our sin is gonna be exposed, is to shrink back. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden, right? As soon as they sinned, they ran off and they covered themselves. They hid and were full of shame. Listen, this is not, to be our response. The exposure of our sin or our evil deeds in the light is, is really what we should want. We should want to walk in the light and be willing to confess sin both to God and to other people who can walk with us as we fight against sin. Because some, not just sometimes, all the time, the way that sin is broken and its power is broken over you is bringing it into the light, not allowing it to stay in the darkness. You and I need other people that we can be honest with who can pray for us, who can encourage us, who can regularly ask us how we're doing and know what's going on in our lives, know our sin struggles, know our temptations. People that when they ask how we're doing, we're not gonna lie to them and say that everything's good. It's not easy, but it's the only way that we're gonna find real fellowship. Verse seven, when he says, if we'll walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. Accountability leads to fellowship. Accountability leads to real fellowship. We may have, We may think that we have to cover things up for people to like us. Oh, people can't know all my weaknesses. People can't know all all my flaws and shortcomings. They can't know about my past because then they'll think less of me. We may think that if we're really honest with other people about what's going on in our heart and our mind, then people will run from us or think less of us, and you might be right. Yeah, they might. People might think less of you if you make a practice of living in the light. Now, there's wisdom in being careful about who you're truly vulnerable with. I don't think you should just be airing all your dirty laundry out there for everybody to know. Here's all the sins I struggle with. Here's a, here's a list for everybody. I'm not saying that's what you should do. There's wisdom in knowing who, and, and it's usually a small group of people that you can have hold, hold you accountable and know what's going on with you for real. Well, listen, there's still a risk even to that, but I'd say the risk is worth it. And if you approach someone who actually has the Holy Spirit like you do, I cannot imagine you're going to find anything but care and compassion and hopefully reciprocation. They turn around and they're honest with you. At the end of the day, if people find out what you struggle with and think less of you, who cares? Who cares? You want to get real about killing sin in your life? This is what it takes. And when you do grow and you see some victory over sin in your life and you've matured in your faith and other people look on, And see, what they're going to see is what God has done. It won't be about restoring your reputation. It'll be about God showing off the kind of life change that he's capable of accomplishing in you. And that's what we want, right? We want to point other people to him, point other people to what he can do in us, not just about who we are and our own reputation. He is absolutely able to change your life, and he is absolutely committed to it if you belong to him. He will finish what he started in you. And I know that because I believe the scriptures. In this fourth point, you can rely on who God is and what he's done. What the scriptures tell us about him and what he's done. Look again at at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If he's faithful and just, to do what? To cleanse and forgive. How is that faithful and just of him? If you were faithful and just, we would think that would mean condemning us. I know my sin makes me guilty before the Lord. I've sinned against him. I've sinned against my, even myself in the image of God that is in me, okay? I, I know what I deserve. How could forgiving be his response when I confess my sin to him? Because Jesus has already paid the debt for our sin. Justice has come for our sin already on the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what John is talking about in chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's been the payment. He's taken the punishment. He has been judged on our behalf. And because the holiness of God has come in judgment on our sin already, he can be faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. In fact, it would be unjust of him to punish our sins twice. You ever think about that? It'd be unjust of God to punish our sins twice. He's not looking to punish you for your sins. He's already brought out justice on Christ on the cross. Has Jesus taken my sin? Yeah. Then his faithful and just response to me, who is in Christ, is forgiveness and cleansing from sin. And don't misunderstand this verse to mean that every time you sin, like we said before, that you need new forgiveness and new cleansing every single time. You gotta go back to him and get, like, resaved almost every time. That's not what I'm saying. I think we should read this instead to mean that we don't find anything other than his pronouncement of cleansed from unrighteousness, his pronouncement of forgiven over us when we come into his presence confessing our sin. And so we shouldn't shrink back. We shouldn't pull back from going to him with it. And I think it's even wise to bring our temptations to him. Even if you haven't given into the sin yet, bring your temptations to him. This is what I'm being tempted with, Lord admitting where our desires are feeling drawn toward things of the world, toward satisfaction that we know is outside of him and outside of his will for us. You know, you've probably heard this verse before, First Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There again, he is faithful. And not only that, he knows how to guide you to the way of escape when you're faced with temptation. So yeah, absolutely, bring your temptations to him. Be open and honest with him about it. Because what you're doing by coming to him over and over and over again with your sin and even your temptation is you're reestablishing your own trust in him. You're not changing his mind about you. You're changing your own mind about him. And that helps you in fighting against sin. You know, one other thing I want us to notice before we get to the last point is right there in verse one of chapter two. My little children, I'm writing that these things that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Obviously, John's goal is all of our goal. We don't want to sin. He's saying, I don't want you to sin, but if you do, you have an advocate. This word for advocate is paraclete. It's the same word that Jesus used of the Holy Spirit when he was talking to his disciples in John chapter 14. A helper, one who comes alongside. And in this case, we're in this context, we're, we're seeing he is one who speaks on our behalf. He's one who stands on our side or at our side, defending us before the Father. And I don't think that this means that the Father has it out for us and that he has to be persuaded to love us. No, not true. The Father loves us. They are one in their love for us. It's not that he has to convince the Father to be okay with us, but rather, uh, it is them together, honestly, coming uh, before us and in, in his advocacy is with the Father, and they're in agreement, saying, yes, absolutely, what you've done has been applied to this one. And so he stands in our defense in that way. And it's not so much against the Father, but I think there is a, uh, there's an adversary that would accuse us, Satan, the devil. He would accuse us before the Lord and say, look at all the things that they've done. Look at all this stuff, how, how bad they are. Shouldn't you condemn them? And this Jesus is gonna stand up to our defense and say, absolutely not, I've taken care of their sin. And if Jesus is taken up my defense, that means I don't have to. I don't have to come to my own defense. I don't have to get defensive about my sin as if my sin were defensible anyways. We feel that sometimes, don't we? We feel like we need to try to defend ourselves, even to God at times. We do not have to. We have someone else who is doing that for us. I just need to be honest about it and leave my case in Jesus' hands. You know, like we talked about, his own sacrifice for us on the cross is all the defense that we need. You know, it says Jesus Christ the righteous, and I love that name for him. Sometimes in my prayers, I just want to, I call him Jesus Christ the righteous because I love that together. You know, it reminds me of some a verse that fits with the context of what we're talking about. Hebrews 4.15, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ the righteous. He understands what it is to face temptation. He understands what it is to take on flesh and to live in this kind of world, this sinful, broken world without sin. He's overcome it. He's been victorious over it on our behalf. And this is the one who stands on our at our side. And now when we get our act, not when we get our act together, but rather as we bring our sin to the Father. He doesn't stand at your side when you get it all together, but rather as you sin, he is your advocate. This should motivate us. He loves me so much, how can I not love him in return? So that's the fifth point, our exhortation for the night. Let love for him drive away love of the world. In chapter two, verse five, Jesus, uh, or John is saying, you know, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. The love of God is being perfected in the one who keeps his word. We talked a good bit last week about uh, about loving God and about how we were made to glorify him. Okay, we, were, we said that we were made to worship him. We were made to worship with our whole lives as we recognize who he is, we recognize what he's done, and we respond to that. That's what we were made for. And here's a connection point for us between that message and this one, that as recognition of his love for me grows, so grows my love for him. That's what we said last week, that's what we're saying tonight. And as love for him grows, so grows my desire to live for him and deny the flesh and live by the spirit. So here's what I'm trying to say. What if we set our hearts and our minds on him and gave everything that we are to him? Worshiped him with our whole lives, gave everything we are to this. Would not a love for him crowd out our love for the things of the world? You know, uh, later in chapter two, first uh, John chapter two, John says this in 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What I see is that the two loves are in conflict. Love for the things of the world, love for satisfaction that the worldly things might, might bring us, and love for God. These two things are in conflict, and if we're going to put away love for the world and overcome sinful desires, overcome trying to gratify our desires by things of the world, then I think it's gonna to have to take a growing love for God. That as we grow in love for God, it pushes out the love for these other things. And really, we only do that by first recognizing how he's loved us. That was a key verse last week. We love as he first loved us. First John 4, 19. So how do we handle this ongoing sin struggle? We recognize who God is recognize what he's done. We need to see how gracious he is toward us, how much he loves us, and let that kindness lead us to repentance because that's what it's going to take, his kindness leading us to repentance. That means we've got to be honest about our sin. That means you need to see how you were made and saved for more than living for yourself, or for the flesh or the things of the world, and bring your everything to him with open hands and be ready to walk in the light, whatever that might mean. And when you do these things, I feel confident in saying, I, I promise you can find victory over sin. There's real victory over sin to be had. You can deny temptation. Those things that plague you, they will lose your, their power over you as you grow in your love for the Lord. Can I bring back up Romans 7 to you? We were at a long stretch in Romans 7 earlier, uh, but I want to read the next couple of verses. Thanks to be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is our hope. This is the good news. I may struggle, just like Paul did, with all these different things, but thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. As he has made a way, who's gonna deliver me from this body of death, he will. And there's no condemnation in him if I am in Christ Jesus.